Well, believe it or not, I'm sure like all of you, woke up this morning and realized it was May 1st, and uh, today also marks the start of a summer sermon series, now that's a tongue twister, um, <clears throat> starting today in Luke's Gospel. Um, Jeff will be back with us next week to conclude his series on Proverbs, and um, then you'll be stuck with me for a, a good portion of the summer, and we'll be working through the first four chapters in Luke's Gospel, starting today with Luke 1, 5 through 25, and progressively working forward until August when we finish it out in Luke 4, 16 through 30, a text commonly recognized in Luke's Gospel as this launching point for Jesus' ministry. So I'm entitling this series, The Coming of the King. Um, fortunately, though, maybe for you, you're not stuck with just me for this summer. Uh, we have some of our elders who are preaching, Rick and uh, Vic, Carl and Shane. And then we have a few of the elder, or a, uh, a few teaching elders, rather, um, from RTS Orlando, a few professors who will be coming up to preach as well and to administer um, the Lord's Supper at various times during the summer. Campus outreach is also coming pretty soon, so we have an exciting summer in store for us while Jeff is on sabbatical. But for today, let's begin um, with our text in Luke 1, 5 through 25. Um, the text is printed in your bulletin. It's also going to be on the screens or on the projector. And follow along with me as I read. I'll be reading from the ESV. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God... When his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that, they, that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months 
she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit this morning, you would meet us exactly how we need to be met. For those of us that are downcast or distraught, would you encourage us through your word? And for those of us who are prideful, would you humble us through it? Your word is able to accomplish the purpose for which you set forth, and we ask that you would drive home your word in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just before this text, we encountered, as I preached from a few months ago now, I guess, the prologue to Luke's gospel, where we're introduced to the grand scope of the ministry of Jesus Christ set forward in Luke's gospel. And then immediately after the turn of the prologue, when Luke opens his account in this narrative, we're immediately introduced to two predicaments, two problematic but at the same time, very related issues in our text this morning. One that's explicitly mentioned in the text and another that's implicit in the historical and the theological background. First, we're introduced to the problem of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their predicament. Zechariah is an average Joe priest, we might say. He's one of actually 18,000 priests in first century Israel at this time. And both he and his wife, Elizabeth, are painted in the text as faithful and believing Jews, right? They, they love God, and as the text tells us, they walked blamelessly. That doesn't mean sinlessness, but a general uprightness in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, that's quite a description of piety. But there's a problem. Their childlessness. And the prospects of having children are almost non-existent for them because they're both advanced in years. Now, the issue of barrenness and the inability to conceive children, even in today's culture, is tragic for couples where that's a reality. And for a first century Jewish couple like Zechariah and Elizabeth, it would have been an equally tragic situation. And to top it all off, in such a culture, barrenness carried a social stigma with it. Infertility was often thought to be the result of one's own sin. It was thought to be a curse from God for disobedience. And this explains why later in the passage, in 125, after Elizabeth finally does conceive, she praises God for taking her, quote, reproach away among people. A couple like Zechariah and Elizabeth who were barren would have been looked upon in much of the same way that Job's friends, if you remember back in the book of Job, looked upon Job in that you must have done something to merit such a condition as this. But the way the narrative presents Zechariah and Elizabeth takes away even the option that this is somehow a punishment for sin. Luke He doesn't try to editorialize or explain the tension away, why a couple like Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were praying and asking for something really good, weren't able to have it. We're not told why. But rather, we as the readers are simply meant to feel the weight of the sorrow of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were barren by no fault of their own, and they suffered on top of it the social stigma of barrenness. And as the text implies later on, And as I alluded to a few seconds ago, they'd even prayed repeatedly for a child, yet their request had gone unanswered. And this is, in fact, the larger issue in our text this morning. 
God had been silent in their situation, despite their very good desires, and no doubt, despite their persistent prayers, God hadn't given them an answer. Well, second, there's another issue, one more implicit than the issue of Zechariah and Elizabeth, but no less real. And that problem is that God had not only been silent in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth, but also he's been, he was up until this point, he was silent in Israel for more than 400 years. There had been no word of prophecy since the, the book of Malachi, that final book in the Old Testament. And many be Jews believed that the Holy Spirit had even ceased to function in Israel. So on two levels, at a personal level and at a corporate level, God was seemingly silent, despite the long, persistent, and tireless prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and no doubt despite the prayers of faithful Israel who were longing for God to remember his new covenant promises, those promises littered throughout the Old Testament, and to act. Well, such a predicament, this double predicament we're introduced to at the outset, raises a number of questions for us as we enter the fabric of this narrative. First, reading this incredible angelic encounter in light of the background may lead us to ask, had the time finally come when God was going to once again act for his people as he promised? And then also, would God, was this the time when God was finally going to act for Zechariah and Elizabeth in their barrenness and sorrow? And as we ask these questions, feeling and identifying with the plight of Zechariah and Elizabeth and of Israel as a whole, I bet some of us are asking similar questions in our own lives right now. Maybe you're asking, has God heard my prayer to be freed of persistent medical issues? Or when is God going to answer my prayer to be freed from this cycle of sin that I can't seem to break, whatever that might be? In one sense, our time, the, the time period in which we live and our situation is quite different from Israel in the time of Herod the Great because God has finally spoken in these last days in his son, as, uh, as Shane read for us in Hebrews 1 this morning. And, and the spirit of God is living and active in a new way, indicative of life in the new covenant. Yet in another very real and profound sense, we can identify with Zechariah and Elizabeth because we still wrestle in our prayer lives, asking God to meet us in our helplessness, in many cases to meet us and to answer the really good things that we're asking for. Yet what do we do when God is seemingly silent in our prayers and these really good things we're asking for have seemingly gone unanswered? What do we do? Is God even active in our lives. Well, I believe the Holy Spirit meets us in this passage today in the midst of such personal questions that we're asking. And what I want us to see from this text, what I believe the, the Holy Spirit teaches us through it, is that God is indeed active in our lives. And he's active in three ways that I can see. He's active in hearing and responding to our prayers, in bringing reconciliation, and in leading us to joy. So first, God is active in our lives in hearing and responding to our prayers. You know, there's a lot we don't know about Zechariah and Elizabeth and their prayer life, but it would seem, based upon the lavish description of their piety, 
that their prayer life was, must have also been quite robust and active. We know from what the angel tells us in verse 13 that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying, specifically, you know, they've been praying for a child. And furthermore, faithful Israel, even in this dark time in Israel's history, there were still those who were faithful like Zechariah, who were also active in prayer. Notice in verse 10 that as Zechariah is in the temple offering up incense, a multitude of the people is standing outside praying. And while we don't know exactly what the content of their prayers might have been, one commentator, Daryl Bach, suggests, based on historical evidence, that this multitude was asking God to enter into the sanctuary and to accept their offering of incense. In short, this multitude was asking for God to remember his new covenant promises and to act. Well, Zechariah is in the temple. We meet this angel Gabriel. And what does he tell Zechariah? He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. We don't know if Zechariah and Elizabeth had given up in praying for a child. They very well might have. But what the angel's words reveal is profound. They reveal that their prayer for a child, which they've been praying for for some time now, all along it hadn't been ignored. It had been heard. And even though they had no answer, and we can't speculate as to why they didn't get an answer, why it didn't come sooner, we cannot conclude that it was because God had turned his back on them. He certainly didn't. And as the angel continues to speak with Zechariah, telling him that his and Elizabeth's prayer had been heard and would it, be, it would be answered in short order, he also tells them that the prayer of Israel, represented in part by those praying outside the temple, had also been heard and God was about to act. This long period of darkness of over 400 years was about to end. Well, Scripture never tells us in the wisdom of God why he decided to wait 400 years to act on Israel's behalf. But one thing I find interesting about God's timing from this passage is that he chose to fulfill the promises of expectation from the Old Testament, as the text tells us in verse 5, in the days of Herod. This refers to Herod the Great. I know when we read scripture, we're confronted with a number of different Herods. This is, I guess we might say the first one, Herod the Great. He would die in 4 AD, so a few years later. But he was by no means a righteous king. In fact, towards the end of his life, Herod was overtaken by paranoia and had several of his sons and his wife executed because he was worried about maintaining his rule. Nor was Herod an independent king. Israel, at this point in their history, was ruled by the Roman Empire, and, an, and, a, and a position like Herod's was more like a puppet king. He was accountable to the Roman Empire. And then to top it all off, Herod wasn't even really a Jew. It was probably not, it's probably not accurate to say that this period in the time of Herod was the lowest point during Israel's history in this 400-year span, what we call the intertestamental period. But it wasn't a good time either. Consider, for instance, that there was a time during the intertestamental period of roughly 80 years when Israel was virtually independent, where it may have seemed from a human perspective like it was a ripe time for God to act. The, at this period, this 80-year period of independence, Israel had driven out the Greeks who were occupying their land in what was known as the Maccabean Revolt, and the stars were seemingly aligned for Israel. If ever there was going to be a ripe time for God to act from a human perspective, that would have been it. Yet God was still silent during that time. 
Instead, God chose to wait until Israel was again steeped in corruption and when the most powerful dynasty in the ancient world was occupying their land. God certainly doesn't speak or work when we most expect him to, does he? Yet what this text teaches us is that even though God is sometimes silent in our prayer lives, when he doesn't answer us, when we most expect him to answer us, when we're asking for good things and we don't get an answer, that doesn't mean that he's ignoring our prayers or that he's somehow preoccupied. And whatever the reason, God might be delaying and giving us a yes or a no in our prayers, even when it seems like it might be a pretty ripe time in our lives for God to act, can't be because God isn't powerful enough, nor can it be because he doesn't care. And as we'll see shortly in the cross, his care is demonstrated profoundly. Well, if you're anything like me, it often seems like the prevailing metaphor of my prayer life is one of waiting, where I'm waiting for God to give an answer to something I've been asking for. But when I really take a step back and I look at the breadth of things that I've prayed for, so many times God has indeed been faithful in answering so many of my other prayers. And the question so often isn't whether or not God has been active in answering or responding to my prayers, but the question is whether or not I've been attentive to the many other ways that God has been answering and granting my other requests. And even though that might not help for those of you who are waiting for God to act, and even as we diligently and repeatedly pray for certain things, and and we want God to act in a very particular way in our lives, and we're waiting on him, in the process, we're also learning dependence. We're learning to sit sit as children at our Father's feet, and in the process, we're experiencing intimacy with him, even though it seems like he's silent in our lives. And even though in the long, drawn-out process of praying, sometimes that answer that we get will be a no, we can still have confidence that God is active in our prayers because of the gospel. Later on in uh, the gospel account, we read of this prayer, this incredible prayer of Jesus when he prays just just before he he goes to his, just before he's arrested and betrayed and and he goes to his death, this prayer in Gethsemane the day before. And in this prayer, he asks the Father to take the cup of suffering on the cross from him. But his prayer, as we know, is denied. Tim Keller, reflecting on this text, and yes, even though I'm preaching, you're not going to get away from Tim Keller quotes. Um, In a book on prayer, he writes this, which I find so profound, and I would really commend his book on prayer to you. Keller writes this. He writes, sinners deserve to have their prayers go unanswered. Jesus was the only human being in history who deserved to have all his prayers answered because of his perfect life, yet he was turned down as if he cherished iniquity in his heart. God treated Jesus as we deserve. He took the penalty so that when we believe in him, God can then treat us as Jesus deserved. More specifically, Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we as sinners merit so that our prayers could have the reception that he merits. This is why when Christians pray, they have the confidence that they will be heard by God and answered in the wisest way. There's a lot of things we don't know about unanswered prayer. We can't postulate into the mind of God. But what this text tells us is that God is indeed active in hearing our prayers, in meeting with us, and in responding to us in the wisest way in the wisdom of God.
Well, second, God is active in our lives right now in bringing reconciliation. Let's look at the text again and the nature of John's ministry, which is a really powerful text that's announced by the angel Gabriel. Look at the text again, uh, specifically right now, verses 15 through 17, where we read this elaborate proclamation of what John will do. We read, for he, John, will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." Now, we'll be introduced later in our summer sermon series, there we go, uh, to John's ministry and action in Luke chapter 3. But at this juncture, there's three important things that we discover about the ministry of John. First, we read that John's ministry will be in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, if you remember from the Old Testament, Elijah the prophet served during the reign of King Ahab. So we're looking right now probably 800 years before John's ministry. And in a broad sense, Ahab's reign was like Herod, in that his reign wasn't a positive time for the people of God. In fact, that might be an understatement when we read the evaluation that Ahab received in 1 Kings 16, where the author of 1 Kings writes, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. That is not very good for Ahab. But at this very dark and spiritually dry time in Israel's history, the prophet Elijah was called to prophesy against Ahab and to call the people of Israel back from worshiping the false god Baal. He was, in a sense, to call Israel back to repentance. And this is exactly what Elijah did, as we read in 1 Kings 17 through 19. He confronted the prophets of this false god Baal, and God used Elijah's ministry, at least for a very short time, in calling Israel back to the true God. And it's in a similar sense that John, in our text, is called to engage the people of Israel. As a, as a prophet, John is called to deliver a message of repentance to Israel. And this message would carry a similar force as Elijah because it would be empowered by the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, that empowered Elijah's ministry. And just a cursory reading of Elijah's ministry in 1 Kings 17 through 19, if you get a chance to read that text, reveals some pretty incredible power that God was at work in Elijah's ministry through the Holy Spirit. And this same power would be available in John's ministry too. The reconciliation in John's ministry and the reconciliation that God brings about in the lives of his people and the lives of even you and I is just as powerful as Elijah, just as powerful as John, because it's a reconciliation that's first and foremost empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then the second feature of John's ministry we find is that John's ministry is a trailer ministry. Now, I'm not referring to those trailers that you hitch to the back of a pickup truck. I'm using cinema vocabulary here. John's ministry was like the exciting, action-packed trailer, that two- to three-minute preview that comes out several months before the feature, main fe cinematic features released in a movie theater. Now, I'm no cinema expert. I don't know what goes into composing those type of things. But when I watch a trailer to a movie, at least if it's done right, they often evoke excitement and curiosity for the feature film don't they? In fact, the very few times that I go to the movie theaters uh, and the trailers start rolling, and I know there's quite a few trailers nowadays, I often find myself captivated, so captivated by the films that are still several months away from being in the theaters that I sometimes forget what I even came to see in the first place. That's the effect 
I think we can all relate, that those trailers can have on us. And it's in this sense that John's ministry is like the trailer for a movie. It's effective and powerful because it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. But it's not the feature picture. Rather, it points to and previews the feature picture, which is the ministry of Christ, which we'll meet in a few weeks as we go through the text. And then the third thing we learn about John's ministry is the holistic reconciliation and restoration that it brings. Again, the text reads, And John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the power and spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. The reconciliation that's brought about in John's ministry is a holistic reconciliation. It starts with many turning to the Lord, turning out of a deep realization of one's sin and neediness, while at the same time turning because you see the beauty of who God is as he reveals himself in his word. Reconciliation first has this vertical aspect whereby our relationship with God is restored and healed. And then out of this vertical reconciliation comes horizontal reconciliation where all of our relationships, both in the covenant family and then even elsewhere, become affected. In short, reconciliation with God brings reconciliation elsewhere. And if this these powerful words we just read about what John's ministry would bring, the type of reconciliation they would bring, if this is what John's ministry would accomplish in Israel, how much more would Jesus's? How much more would Jesus's ministry accomplish for the whole cosmos? Friends, as those who stand on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ, we are partakers of this feature film. This reconciliation of John, as grand as it's portrayed, pales in comparison to the reconciliation that Jesus Christ brings. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing through us, through his church even now. Through his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he calls us effectively to relinquish our idols, to relinquish our control, to relinquish our power, whatever else we turn to to find hope. He calls us powerfully to relinquish those things and then invites us to find our meaning and worth in Jesus Christ. And then when we embrace who we are in Christ, we begin more and more to live out of this new identity, learning more and more what it means to live in Christ, and and then more and more having the fabric of our identity affected. And then we become people who are gracious with one another as we enter relationships. We become a more forgiving people because of the degree to which we've been forgiven. We become a more patient people because of how God in Christ was patient towards us. The ministry of John brings a prototype of what this new community would look like. And friends, we, the church, are the realization of this new community. If John's ministry would powerfully and effectively bring about this holistic restoration in a community, how much more would Christ's, in whom it finds its realization? God is active in our lives by assuring us, by comforting us in the Holy Spirit, who we are in Christ, and then drawing us to one another in a spirit of forgiveness and understanding and love towards our covenant family. Well, then the third thing we find about um, God's activity is that God is active in our lives in leading us to joy. In verse 14, the angel Gabriel announces the impact of John's birth for Zechariah and Elizabeth and for Israel as a whole. 
John's birth, as the text tells us, would bring joy and gladness. Joy and gladness for Zechariah and Elizabeth, and joy and gladness for Israel, too. Now, it's interesting that throughout this narrative, Luke is beautifully weaving together the implications of God's work for both individuals and for the nation. For such a monumental occasion being announced, remember, it's been 400 years since God has spoken to his people. This is a monumental occasion for the people of God, the coming of the kingdom of God that's heralded by John. In the midst of that, the individual needs of God's people aren't lost or swallowed up or trivialized. And both of these realities make up the grand picture of the gospel, these grand cosmic effects of the gospel and the personal transformation and hope that's brought about through it. The gospel's good news for the world because it's an announcement that the restoration of all things is at hand. And it's good news for us individually because it's the announcement of new life that you and I are created as new creations. When we peer into the simplicity and at the same time the beautiful complexity of the gospel and we take stock of its implications, there's a right and a natural joy that follows from it. But at the same time, this joy that accompanies the gospel isn't a superficial joy or a naive joy. I wonder sometimes if the way we often think about joy, if you're anything like me, confuses the look of joy with the reality of joy. In other words, I wonder if we as Christians know that we're supposed to look the part, especially in church. And as a result, we walk around with smiles on our faces, being the blessed individuals that we are, but our understanding of the gospel or the pain, it doesn't go deep enough, or the pain we're going through is, is far too much to handle on our own. And so we walk around with maybe the smiles on our face, but, but confusion and pain and suffering in our hearts. But biblical joy that we find throughout scripture is far from superficial or naive. Biblical joy is first and foremost rooted in the gospel. It's a joy that's birthed from an understanding of our desperate neediness. It's a joy that despite our sufferings knows that God is a good God who has overcome death in Christ. It's joy that's future oriented, taking stock of what God is going to do for his people. It's joy that is often accompanied by the inherent tension in the already and the not yet. Biblical joy is far more robust, deeper, and longer lasting than merely walking around with a smile on our face and lying to others. This is the type of joy that Zechariah and Elizabeth are told will accompany the birth of John and the coming of the messianic kingdom. And this is the type of joy, the kind of joy that follows from a life that embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the narrative concludes after Gabriel announces the inbreaking of the kingdom of God that would be heralded by John, Luke contrasts for us real briefly two different responses to this message. There's the response of Zechariah and the response of Elizabeth. When Zechariah is confronted with the word of God as announced by Gabriel, he responds in unbelief, and as a result, he's stricken with silence. But when Elizabeth is confronted, she responds represented by the conception of John in her womb, with joy. True biblical joy springs from faith. It's the dance that accompanies the music of the gospel. And so, friends, I ask the simple question, what is your response to the gospel? If you've never responded to the gospel, how do you respond? And if you've been a Christian your whole life, how do you respond daily to this news of the gospel? 
Well, the movement of this narrative that we've just gone over began in a powerful way when the angel Gabriel enters the temple and he announces the coming of the kingdom. So far, we've only heard the announcement of John. We haven't even met John, let alone Jesus. But the beginning of the new covenant, this kingdom work of Christ has already begun at this point in the narrative. And it's fitting that this announcement would take place in the temple. For such a climactic message, the grand structure of the temple is a fitting place for this announcement to be heralded. But very, very quickly, as we'll continue to trace and track as we go in the coming weeks, the trajectory of events looks outside the temple. And by the end of this narrative section, Elizabeth is rejoicing outside Jerusalem. And when we come to Christ, who is the very center of the gospel, the very pinnacle of our hope, what we find is that the one who brings salvation is born of a teenage girl. His birth is announced to shepherds, these lowly, disgusting people in society. His work is for the needy and downcast, and he will die the death of a criminal. But through his resurrection, by bringing life out of death, which God so often does, God brings life to you and I. If you're wondering whether or not God is really active in your life, whether or not he really cares, whether or not he's ever going to respond to your prayers, friends, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Just pray that this would be maybe the start of uh, some of us in here uh, meeting with you. We know that your word accomplishes what you set forth for it to accomplish, and we just ask that you would encourage those of us that need encouragement in the gospel, that you confront those of us who've maybe never given a response to this glorious message of the gospel, and that you would drive your word home by your spirit as your spirit so effectively and powerfully does. We love you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.